Welcome back to the Dad Chronicle. I'm your host, Alex Albisu. This is episode 65. Now, before we get started, I want to remind you, you can visit thedadchronicle.com if you would like to listen to other stories of fatherhood. You can become a patron and take a look at those rewards for becoming a patron by clicking the Become a Patron button at the top of the website. Our guest today is Dr. Jerry Tolbert. Jerry and I competed against each other in America's Next Top Podcaster, and I had the absolute pleasure of working really closely with him towards the end of the competition. If you've been listening to the show, uh, America's Next Top Podcaster, you've likely heard that I am, uh, I was one of the final two contestants. I ended up in second place against Miss Amy Frost, well-deserved win, but during that last competition, that last submission, I had the opportunity to be on a project and a team with Jerry. Jerry and I jump into a bunch of different topics. He's a doctor, he's a family practitioner, which means that he is quite busy. We talk a bit about what it was like for him to find out that he had twins and understand the medical complications that can come along with having twins. I looked at the doctor who was doing the ultrasound and I said, uh, yeah. And she said, uh, yeah. And Sarah just went off. She's, uh, yeah, what, 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 what's going on? What, uh, what is going on? What is wrong? <laughs> we also talk about some of the general good things and bad things that come along with medical knowledge and raising kids. It is really difficult to have a little bit of knowledge. It is even more difficult to have a lot of knowledge and not be able to do anything with it. And finally, we end on a topic that is somewhat controversial. We talk a bit about vaccinations. Talk to somebody whose parents or grandparents or brothers lined up down the street to get the polio vaccine when it was first available because they understood that disease and how dangerous it was and and what it meant to get that disease. Here's my conversation with Jerry Tolbert. Jerry Tolbert, thanks so much for being on The Dad Chronicle. How are you, sir? I'm good, Alex. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jerry, uh, you and I got to know each other a bit on America's Next Stop Podcaster. You um, are an awesome individual. I've really enjoyed getting to know you towards the end of the competition there. Um, But for the folks at home, why don't you take just a moment to introduce yourself to them if they don't know you? Sure. And I agree. It was really awesome getting a chance to get to know you as well. Um, My name is Jerry Tolbert. I'm a family physician in Northern Kentucky, and I have a little bit of a background with podcasting, not a ton, uh, more editing than actual podcasting myself, but I have developed a significant interest after the competition that we were in. I'm looking at creating a podcast that involves one of the other contestants on the show, Bridget, and another friend of ours, Dan Patrice, who does a podcast already for some board game stuff and uh, pop culture. Uh, I am kind of trying to spread my wings a little bit and do a little bit of guesting on other podcasts when people ask and being a little less afraid of getting myself out there to talk about things. And here you are. I love it. That's exactly. Really fun. And I appreciate you asking me to be on. Of course, dude. No, I've, uh, I always look for, uh, folks I like, first of all, to be on this show and you're somebody <laughs> I like, uh, but, but people with really interesting, um, perspectives and, you know, you and I have had some conversations about fatherhood and I was like, yeah, I gotta have this guy on the, on the, on the show. Uh, so thank you very much for, for being willing to share your story. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, your wife and your kids? Um, you have, how many kids do you have? I have three kids. Well, my wife and I have three kids. Uh, we have a six-year-old and twins that are four. Okay. So twins, were you guys like surprised at the whole twin thing? You know, I talked to Brad recently, (laughs) right? Like, and Brad is expecting twins and they were, they were like, yeah, we're going to have one more, but 
oh my god now we're having two more so was it like that for you guys we had already talked about how many kids we wanted to have and three was the number that we had kind of settled on i was shooting for more and and my wife was more interested in potentially even stopping at two but i had a I guess my family is fairly large. I'm one of six on one side. My parents divorced when I was really young and both remarried. So I'm one of six on one side and I've got a a stepsister on the other side. So just a couple of us. So I've got a couple of different perspectives on family size. Doesn't really bother me, the, you know, the large family thing. The way we found out, it's actually a pretty interesting story. We were at the doctor's appointment. My wife was about... 15, 16 weeks along. And typically during a prenatal visit, you've been through some of these and, and a lot of folks that have that have kids have been through them. But on the doctor's side of it, we tend to, uh, after about 10 to 12 weeks, we try to get some heart tones so that one, the parents can hear them, but also to reassure us that baby's developing appropriately. And we use something called a handheld Doppler. It's basically just an ultrasound without the picture. It collects the same sound information, but it puts out a little noise and you may have heard it before it kind of goes oh yeah um that's really good by the way it's like it's like you hear it or or something every once in a while yeah i've i've workshopped that one a few times um (laughs) so uh, we're we're doing that we're trying to find heartbeats for the for the baby and the doctor who's a very good friend of mine and, and i've known her for a very long time we were i was a med student when she was a fellow doing her ob fellowship and she's trying to get heart tones and the baby's kind of moving around and, and we're picking them up and losing them picking them up and losing them she said you know what we'll just wheel in the ultrasound machine she's got one there at the office she wheeled it in and she put it down on sarah's belly my wife and flipped it around a couple of different times made it a couple of you know, different passes around and rotated one direction at one point, And there were clearly some things on the screen that, that were perplexing to both she and I for a second until we figured out what was going on. And my wife, of course, my wife's a pharmacist, but she's not used to looking at ultrasound. But as soon as I saw it, I knew there were two heads visible. So basically either something was very wrong or we were having twins. And I <laughs> assumed it was probably twins. Just, you know, I, I like to assume the best, but, uh, I looked at the doctor who was doing the ultrasound and I said, uh, yeah. And she said, uh, yeah. And Sarah just went off. She's, uh, yeah, what, 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 what's going on? What, what is going on? What is wrong? <laughs> and my stepmother had actually, I have two younger brothers that are twins. My, my dad has six kids, six of us, and the, the, I'm the oldest. And then the twins are actually 19 years younger than me. And there's, there are several kids in between, of course. And my stepmom had just done, get it, got done giving my wife a bunch of grief about having twins because she was getting a little bit bigger, a little bit faster as far as weight. And Sarah's like, no, no, it's not twins. It's not twins. And um, of course, at that moment, the doctor said, yeah, it's it's two babies. And her face just kind of went blank. Oh, and, God, I can imagine. I think, it, I, think, I think it scared her a little bit more than it scared me. She's like, what are we going to do? We've got a two-year-old. How are we going to take care of twins? And I was like, hey, twins, cool. So you were totally like, I mean, you know, obviously you got to be fine with it, right? But so, yeah, but you were, were you excited about it or are you just kind of passive about it? A little bit of both. I think at that point, it's still early enough on that you've got to kind of be careful. And and I always tell patients or anybody who'll listen half the time, it is really difficult to have a little bit of knowledge. It is even more difficult to have a lot of knowledge and not be able to do anything with it. Sure. When it comes to babies, we are really in our... (laughs) <laughs> to, to, to borrow a pun, we are in our infancy with how we deal with anything that happens before 24 weeks or so. And as I said earlier, we were kind of at the teens, 16, 17 weeks. And we had tried 
for a long time before our first daughter was born. We kind of got into that rut that a lot of parents get into when they're having difficulties. We didn't ever go through in vitro fertilization or anything, but we kind of got to a point where we were moving and things were changing and we were like, you know what, we're just going to stop trying. And about six months later, we found out that Sarah was pregnant with her first daughter. So there was this trepidation, I guess, in the back of my mind when we found out that we were having twins because it's a complicated thing. It immediately makes you a high-risk pregnancy. doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter how many other babies you've had. Twins are high-risk. And they're not like scary, bad, horrible, high-risk, got to do things in a weird way, but they can be. And mm -hmm. they can actually have a lot of other complications that you just don't have to think about when you're talking about singlets. Did you so, end up uh, doing any... So you as a doctor with a lot of knowledge, I'm sure, well, you know, mm -hmm. pro probably less than your friend who studied, you know, th this sort of thing, but you still have uh, quite a bit of knowledge. Did you have somewhat of an inside track on how to handle the whole twin situation? And do you feel like that was an advantage or anything in your in your situation? Absolutely. I had a lot more knowledge. Uh, as part of family medicine training, we have to deliver babies. And I did electives in maternal fetal medicine when I was a med student, and I delivered about 50 babies during my residency. So over three years, about 50 deliveries. I never got C-section privileges. That's really the big difference between somebody that does a OB fellowship and somebody who does just straight up family medicine. Because the doctor that was delivering our kids is actually a family doctor. She just did an OB fellowship for an extra year. Ah. And that's it's usually surgical stuff. So when things go crazy, she still is going to rely on the MFM, the maternal fetal medicine uh, physicians who have specialties in, in those complicated uh, births. I had the inside track. I could talk to the doctor about what was going on. I, you know, But that was part of the scary part, I guess. Because like I said, yeah. you know that before 24 weeks, if something goes wrong, you know, those babies may not make it. And that's hard, but it's also one of those things that it took four or five years of dealing with it directly for me to get that to the point. I don't think of it as being callous. And I think that comes across that way sometimes if you're not careful, but it took me that long to come to terms with the fact that we just don't have a way to do anything. You really are powerless at that point. You can try and you can do all kinds of, of intervention, but to really make an impact before 24 weeks is really hard. And babies that are born before 24 weeks, if they survive, have a very long, very hard road ahead of them. So I kind of was at a point where I just, whatever happened, happened at that point. You know, the farther along we got, the more, like you said, I did have an inside track on what to expect. Yeah. And so Sarah actually carried the girls to term. She was wow. induced to deliver the twins. Wow. So, um, so like, you know, when you say to term, I assume yeah. that's the same as a single uh, pregnancy? Right. Yeah. Wow. So, so term pregnancy is 38 to 40 weeks, somewhere right. in between. Our dates can be off by around two weeks. The Even the, the best dates are going to be plus or minus two weeks. And so she carried them to a full 38 weeks. They were ready to come out. They were five and a half pounds each when they were born. They weren't small babies at all. No, for twins. That's great. Well, that's healthy. I mean, that's good. And she delivered Absolutely. them naturally? Yeah. Good on you guys. Wow. What a blessing. Yeah, no that's awesome. That's great. Now, you know, you as a doctor, you've obviously got a lot of passion around your your craft, what you do, and, and mm -hmm. um, what was your inspiration on wanting to become a doctor in the first place? There's a lot of different stuff that went into that. It's a more complicated question than it looks like on the surface. I started out primarily thinking, what can I do? 
that will allow me to use all of the gifts that I have been given, if you will, my ability to retain random information and my passion for taking care of and helping other people. <laughs> yeah. How do I how do I take that and turn it into something that I can expand as broad as I can get it? I wanted to be able to help as many people in as many different ways as I could. And when I was in junior high, so all the time growing up, my dad was medical, but he was not a doctor. He didn't actually start medical school until I was in junior high. He was a medic in the National Guard, and then he was a paramedic when he got out, and then he went to nursing school and was a nurse, and then he used that to pay for finishing all of his pre-med stuff so he could go to medical school. I was always around that life, which pretty much everybody in medicine will tell you, if you're a kid of somebody medical, either you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. There really isn't much middle ground. I had an inside look at what it took to be a doctor. I had a lot of great examples, not just my dad, who was an excellent example of, of how to be a compassionate person and how to take care of people, but lots of other folks in the medical field, my own family doctors, uh, other doctors that I got to know because of my dad being in the medical field, just people that helped me realize that there was more to being a doctor than just one thing. There, there, there was so much potential there. Mm -hmm. And I originally considered being a pediatrician. That was kind of what I was thinking about when I was in my early high school years was the thing that I had focused on. Actually, truthfully, I remember very vividly back in about third grade, third grade, fourth grade, we had that whole, what are you going to be when you grow up kind of thing as an assignment. And we had to write a paper about it. And it was a couple paragraphs long. But I remember my two paragraphs were about uh, my primary desire was to be an astronaut. And if I couldn't accomplish that, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. So <laughs> and here I you are. Of, wow. Right. So so it wasn't always what I wanted to do. Even growing up in that in that arena, I still didn't come to it until later on. But it was still fairly early. You know, I decided when I was in junior high that I wanted to be a doctor. I decided in high school that I really probably wanted to do family medicine. And I joke that I, I really figured that out almost before my dad did because he was kind of waffling a little bit about what type of residency he wanted to do while he was in medical school. Mm. And so around the same time, we kind of independently, I think, came to that decision of, of family medicine was the right way to go. And when you thought about doing, you know, family medicine. So a lot of what your dad did, it sounds like really influenced uh, th that decision there. You, did you have a lot of admiration for your dad growing up? And, and did that affect the decision to, to become a doctor? It did to some degree. You could definitely say that he had an influence. I don't want to make it sound like he was the only thing uh, or that he wasn't a part of it. It was kind of somewhere in the middle. Uh, yeah. He has a very distinct way of doing things. And I, good, bad, or indifferent, have a lot of the same kinds of mannerisms. We we finish each other's sentences to, to again, to make it obvious that, yes, he does have a huge impact on, on a lot of what I am and what I do. But I don't think it was a conscious impact. I think, truthfully, my bigger push to being a doctor was how do I get out there and help as many people in as big a way as possible. That's actually why I chose family medicine, because I can take care of everything. In terms of family medicine, we are trained to do as much as we possibly can uh, with the tools that we're given. You know, the, the places that have no doctors, those are the places where family medicine really shines, I guess. The training for every family physician, if you chase it down, Sometimes you don't even have to do that. Sometimes it comes to you. But it's the training for every family physician to take care of everything. Back when I first started uh, practice with my dad, when I got out of residency, and I do practice with my dad now, we're, we're in the same office. 
which is really cool. Um, when we first started a practice by ourselves, we were doing some marketing stuff and the marketing people came to us and they asked, okay, what is your thing? You know, the urologists have vasectomies and the ear, nose and throat doctors have, you know, allergies and sinus surgeries and, and, you know, each person's got their thing. And they said, so what's your thing? What's family medicine's thing? Do you do, you know, high blood pressure and, and diabetes? Yeah, we do that. Do you do head colds and, you know, infectious disease stuff? Yeah, we do that. Do you do dermatologic procedures? Yeah, we do that too. Um, we really struggle to come up with a thing because we do all kinds of things. Uh, we do it every day. It's not just head colds or just diabetes or just, you know, any one thing. It's a, it's a lot of, a lot of different things. And the depth is based on the person. You know, if I wanted to learn more about diabetes, I could do a lot more diabetes care. If I wanted to learn more about hypertension, I could do a lot more hypertension care. And I do a lot of those things. I've got varied interests in a lot of different things. So what we came up with was we take care of people. <laughs> That's really what we do. We take care of the whole person. You know, it is the the term that that was pretty popular in in family medicine circles when I was coming through was cradle to grave medicine. And it kind of sounds a little morbid when you say it that way. But the idea is we can take care of mom before the baby's born. We can deliver the baby. We can take care of the baby as a kid. Um, you know, everything that, that pediatricians do in terms of just general pediatrics, we do in our offices as well. And then take care of that kid as they become an adult and have their own kids and all the way through until they end up, you know, with end of life care and in and there are lots of family physicians that do hospice care. I mean, it is anything that you want it to be and everything in between. Yeah, I, And I that never, was what I wanted. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly what I wanted to be. I never, I never really thought about how family practices like that are so well-rounded. I, I didn't, I, that, that like never clicked to me that you guys can actually like deliver the baby. And then at the, the very end, you know, help with the hospice piece. That's wild. And, um, you know, like, I guess, how demanding is your job? I, you know, hearing about all these different things that you're involved with, uh, I almost put it up to, like, you know, what you see on, thing, you know, shows like Scrubs or, or you know, Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> where, where th these are really, like, demanding jobs, time-consuming. Is that true of a family practice? Absolutely. Yeah. In some cases, more so. Not nearly as much as, you know, cardiothoracic surgeons and neurosurgeons and, and folks that have these high demand, low volume, like you don't have enough of them to go around. Those kinds of specialists, yeah. they have a, a lot of issues. Uh, for us as primary care, especially family medicine, it, it's nowhere near the level of stress uh, that a surgeon who is spending 12 hours in the operating room each day is dealing with from a physical demanding stand, physically mm -hmm. demanding standpoint. But in terms of the things that we do each day and the amount of work that we have to accomplish and the things that we're trying to get done in any given day, absolutely, it is a an incredibly demanding job. And my colleagues in primary care will tell you six ways to Sunday that we do every bit as much work, quote unquote, as the surgeons do. It's just different. And what's really cool, and just to kind of segue a little bit, what's really cool is that that has helped me, you asked about twins, it's helped me figure out some of the things in parenting that may or may not have been part of my training. You know, we learn about developmental biology and we learn how kids are supposed to develop and what is supposed to happen, quote unquote. And, and there are certain ranges in age where you expect these certain things to happen. And there are certain issues that are going to be, you know, brought to the forefront uh, at different times. You know, when's your kid supposed to roll over? When are they supposed to talk? How many words are they supposed to be saying at, at six months old, at, at a year old, at two, two years old? Um, what we learn 
is normal distribution curves is the best way to put it. It's that statistical idea that, okay, there's this median number that uh, about 50% of the kids are going to have uh, a little bit earlier and 50% of kids are going to be a little bit later. And if they're somewhere around that middle bar, then everything's going to be just fine. Sometimes that's true. And sometimes it's as true as we understand it. <laughs> yeah. And like, and so, you know, on the, on that topic, I mean, you know, if, if people are listening to this right now and they hear you say something like that, and, you know, we have a lot of parents that listen to the show if they're like, oh, where does my kid fit on that scale? What's the right way for them to approach that with their doctor? Just asking the question, uh, you know, if is this normal development? And and I hate that word, but it's something that we sometimes yeah, have to like, use just to speak the same language. Yeah, There's no such thing as normal, right? But is this appropriate? And that's actually probably the best word. Yeah. Is this appropriate development? Is this is is my kid doing what you expect them to do? And, and it's a hard answer it's a good question and it's a solid question. It's the best way to ask the question, but it's hard to answer sometimes easily. The short answer is yes, it's appropriate or no, it's not. And that's usually if you get that, it's going to make you feel okay. Okay. Yes, it's appropriate until it's not is the real answer <laughs> or no, it's not appropriate, but it might be eventually. And that's the problem is that there's some wiggle room in that answer. You know, if, if your kid comes in and at 15 months, exactly, they aren't walking yet, but they're cruising and they're pulling up on things and, and they are doing what we expect them to do, I'd say 12 months, could they be delayed? Absolutely, they could be. But 10 days from now, they may also be walking around not holding on to things and be just fine. Right. So that's the hard part is that, especially as parents and, and being a parent myself, I've, I've had these kinds of moments and I have to kind of step back and, and look at it through multiple different lenses. But you want your kid to do everything the right way and not have a hard time and, and be able to see things the way that they're supposed to and do things the way that they're supposed to and not have complications uh, that will give them a harder time in life. At the same time, it's not easy to understand that some of those things, not only, it's really hard to hear that those things are not in your control, one, and two, that they're considered within normal limits. Like an example, like a negative. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no, Share your example. I was going to ask for an example, actually. So, so prime example: a kid that doesn't talk in more than one word sentences around age one to two. That may be totally problematic if they don't have siblings. But if they're the second child, it's actually considered somewhat of a normal distribution curve because, yeah, if you have an older sibling and you may have grown up with an older sibling, you may have two kids that are distant enough in age. When a kid points at something and doesn't have words for it and they say, eh, you or I, as the parent may say, oh, that's a cup. Can you say cup? But the older sibling is just going to say, oh, you want that thing? Here's that thing. (laughs) Ah, so it's like the reinforcing will actually cause that bell curve to associate on what would typically, like on a first uh, child basis, be a, a negative data set. So that's interesting. Yeah. So so I tell parents all the time, frustration is one of our greatest teachers. If you're never frustrated, you're very rarely going to learn new things. Right. And as a child, developmentally, if you don't have older siblings, you get frustrated a lot. And we can, as parents, we, we've got the ability to kind of logically process and say, oh, this frustration is appropriate. We need to let him have that frustration or her have that frustration so that he or she oh, can learn what to do next, yeah, right? Yeah, li- living that right it, now it's hard. the toddler thing. Right. Holy cow. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it is hard. It is hard to say, oh, 
I need to let him scream a little bit so that he understands that it's okay not to get his way in this situation. Yeah, you um, know, I, I want to ask you, uh, you know, for, for your kids, you've got you've got a tremendous amount of knowledge on on how you know sort of the science end of this whole kid thing. Um, I, I think it's yep. really fascinating some of the the data sets that you mentioned. Um, how much of that have you used to kind of? I don't know, di- diagnose, is that the right word? But like, you know, just kind of analyze how your kids are doing. Um, and, and are there any tips or tricks that you would give to parents? I think about it daily, usually not consciously. Like I said earlier, it is one of those things that it is ingrained in me to look for. I have a bad habit of diagnosing from across the room. Uh, it's not something oh, really? I can turn off. And ever since <laughs> I finished medical school, it has been a problem. Like walking down the street, it's like, oh, he's got a bad hip or, oh, look, he's got problems with eczema or whatever. Those visible things that we see all the time, it's really tricky for me to turn that off and not diagnose or not talk about what's going on. And my kids are no exception. If they have a problem, I usually am am aware of it sometimes long before them, but other times pretty pretty soon before them. And I am subconsciously or consciously or, or however you want to think about it, I am using those tips and tricks that I was just talking about all the time. I was never the parent who went straight to my kid's bedside if they started crying and picked them up and carried them around. And I was not distant or cold or any of those other things. I I try to be a very loving and very connected uh, person in general with everybody, but especially with my family. They know that I love them. And I not only say that and demonstrate that every day, but I understand that that reinforcement is incredibly important to a kid's development. I would still let my kids stand and cry in their bed for hour, two hours, as long as they knew I was there and could comfort them. If they were fussing and not wanting to go to sleep, I was not picking them up because I understood that yep. that reinforcement was something that as soon as you've lost that game, now you're just bartering for for cost. Man, and that's a hard um, thing to do as a parent to sit there and watch oh, it. Absolutely. We, we went through that with Aria, man. And that's, yeah, you have to just... You have to fight. I even had an episode. I don't remember what episode, but we talked. I talked about that. I think I had my wife on where we talked a bit about how uh, you you have to uh, the cry it out method. There you go. Um, uh-huh. That's it's a valid method, and you know as Absolutely. long as your kid isn't in peril or anything, you know it's it's totally valid. Um, you know one of the things that I was actually wondering with your profession. Uh, obviously, you were talking a little bit earlier about how time consuming it is. Do you see mm-hmm. that as a um, a challenge being a parent, having you know kids at home, and then also a very demanding job? Are you able to balance that well? Well is relative, but yes, <laughs> I I feel like I feel like I try to very hard. There are times when I am gone and don't want to be. It happens. It's yeah. not very often. If I can keep it under you know one to two days a week, that's pretty straightforward, pretty easy. Keeping it under. Once every two weeks, it probably not going to happen. I we alternate calls, so I'm on call every other week and seeing patients in the hospital as well as seeing patients in the office. And those hours can get long, but I still carve out time. Like if I have to go back to the hospital after I have tucked my kids into bed, that's what I do. So my family doesn't necessarily come first, but they definitely have a the lion's share of my time. Yeah. If I have anything to do with it, now there are times when. I may not have that ability and 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 there are demands that that I have to be there for but they know that well for the first year of her life my daughter actually came to the office my oldest daughter uh, Rosella came to the office with me for several months because my wife was working full time and we were building a practice so I wasn't super busy and 
she would stay in my office and we had a pack and play set up in there and she would play in the office. I have figured out ways as best I can to incorporate them into everything that I do. So I don't necessarily run them around in the ICU, but I definitely, they are allowed to come to my office and they have a respect for where they can go and where they can't go and what they can do and what they can't do. But I've never let my job be the thing that keeps me from my family. That's good. That's tough. I've had times where, right. And there have been times where I've had to choose to do something to help somebody else, but they seem to get that, I guess. Sure. I don't, I hope that I don't inspire any kind of resentment over it. Uh, My, my kids. I mean, what does your gut tell you? Well, my kids will say to me, and they're six and four, so they, they're pretty articulate most of the time. Uh, they're still six and four, so <laughs> not a lot of high-minded concepts. But they understand that, that so mom's a pharmacist, dad's a doctor. What do, what do mom and dad do? They help people. And we've tried to instill that in them in terms of what do they do? You know, it, it's, we talk about more what, what do Tolberts do? Tolberts help people. That's what we do. Oh, um, I love and that. So that's our name, so that's what we do. I love that. And they get that. So they get when, when, when Sarah has to work, like right now, my wife's at work at the, at the hospital. Uh, she's a hospital pharmacist and occasionally she has to do second shifts and they get that. They understand, Hey, mom's out helping people. Uh, she, she oftentimes has to work in the NICU with the, the, those 25 week and 26 week babies. And so they get, you know, for when they were really just for starting to talk and understand what was going on, they would talk about mommy going to help babies. And, oh, and I love that. was doing at work. Dude, that's great. And so, yeah, I mean, so, so we have tried to instill in them that if we are gone, there better be a darn good reason for it. And that the work that we do most of the time, it's a darn good reason. So sure. I don't think that they're going to have a lot of resentment of it, but you know, here's, here's, me talking about the fact that they're six and four. I mean, they're just now getting to the stage where if they want to start having a lot of these activity type things, there may be some times when we say no. And my wife and I have talked about that a lot, that there are going to be times where because our schedule is a little busy, we're not going to be able to do 12 different sports and we're not going to be able to do, you know, some of these things that other kids do, quote unquote. But the truth is there are a lot of, of kids that come through the door, especially at the office, that are doing those things and are not happy because they're doing so many different things. Like there are some that, that that's their thing, but there are a lot of them that are doing it because they feel like they should be doing it because uh-huh. it's the thing to do. And, and that's one thing I think that we've tried to show our kids is that you don't have to do something because it's the thing to do. It may be to do something because it's the right thing to do, but you definitely don't have to do it because it's the popular thing to do or the thing that everybody else is doing, you know, not just the peer pressure side of that, that, that whole term gets a lot of weird flack in developmental circles and, we got to be really careful how we talk about that stuff. But, but just this idea that the expectation, why? Why are you doing that? And if it's because you enjoy doing it, great. Go do it. Have fun. Let's go find a way to do it. But if it's because you feel like you have to do it, man, that's a bad reason to do just about anything. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, I want to bring up a, a topic here on the show. You and I have had a, a conversation about, um, and, you know, you as a medical professional, somebody who really knows his stuff, I want to bring up the topic of vaccinations, um, and people listening to this show might think, "Oh God, here we go." Um, but you know, I, I <laughs> dun, think dun. that I, I, but I really think that this is an important thing to socialize, and I think that we should uh, be educated. Uh, and you, as somebody who has a lot of knowledge, obviously about 
everything that we've been talking about up to this point around development, kids, etc. I'm eager to hear your thoughts on the current situation around vaccinations. There seems to be a group of people out there who are uh, interested in not vaccinating their kids for a variety of reasons. It could be a a desire to take a more quote unquote holistic approach. Some of it is fear, maybe of what it, the side effects could be. Other people, there you know valid reasons that hey, you know I can't take this because if I take it, I'm going to die, and and there's some kind yeah. of side effect. I, I would like to hear your perspective on this topic. How much time do we have left? Um, yeah. So so very very big. Uh, concept in terms of what we talk about. A couple of things to point out. Um, one of the terms you use there, and it's, this is not me being a stickler, this is actually incredibly important. People talk about holistic medicine. Holistic medicine is taking care of the whole person. That's literally what I do for a living. Holistic has nothing to do with naturopathic medicine or homeopathy. Don't even get me started on that. Good point. Um, yeah, very good point. Can, so, can you clear? So, so, so just to clarify, it's like, you know, uh, I think about very natural. Uh, yeah you know, sort yeah, of no, approach. I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I know what patients mean when they say it, but the term itself actually has a very specific meaning. And we yeah. want to be careful um, not to, to abuse the words, especially in medicine, you know, medicine, the problem with, with anything that we talk about, but definitely when we talk about medicine is words have a very specific meaning. And if you don't have the same meaning, then you're not saying the same thing, which means you're not communicating well. So in medicine, if somebody comes into the office and they say, oh, I've got really bad congestion, and it turns out they really mean indigestion, those are two very yep. different things. Yeah, very good point. And they can, they can be very different definitions in your head, even though the words you're using are the same exact word. And that's happened to me before. And it's, it's one of the ways that I learned very early on that you've got to make sure you're defining your terms, that you're asking the right questions, that you're diving deeper than just the surface when it comes to this stuff. And vaccines are actually a great example of that. So what do we do with our vaccines? What are we vaccinating against? And the short answer is viruses and bacteria. I mean, that's, that's literally what vaccines are. They are a small amount of protein, usually, from the surface of those or from the inside of, of those viruses and bacteria that cause pretty significant diseases. And we're talking about things that most people in this current generation within that have been born within the last 40 or 50 years have almost literally never seen. There are a lot of folks that have never seen an actual case of measles or polio or tetanus, even though in some third world countries there may be still large numbers of cases. Here in the United States, because of vaccination and because of sanitation and because of other basic public health ideas and inventions, we don't see those things as much anymore. But they are not only very real, they are very, very intense. You know, people always joke about the life expectancy being so low back in the day. And the thing was, is it wasn't that people didn't live to 60 or 70 or 80 years old. They did. In fact, a lot of people did. The problem was, is that there were also a whole lot of people that died before they turned five. And that is what actually skews the life expectancy curve. It's not the fact that people didn't live to 60 or 70 years old. It's that there were a whole lot of more people that died before age five. So when you start building that distribution, it makes that skew a lot younger. Uh, that is the problem. And that's the, the conceptual problem that we're really fighting here, which is childhood death from preventable illness used to be a massive problem, used to be the largest cause of death, hands down, across the board, no matter what. Infectious disease was the number one cause of death. A big part of fixing that was sanitation. Another big part was Jonas Salk figuring out that we could give small amounts of whatever it is that we're trying to fight 
your immune system is going to see that it's going to have a reaction to it and then it's going to be primed to fight it off even better when you actually see the the big bad virus or bacteria that's causing that disease and you know i wanted to ask when people are getting these vaccines one of the things that they're noted that they're noting is you know all the the stuff that's in these uh these vaccinations uh the chemicals etc is that something to be concerned about you should always be aware of what you're doing so i don't begrudge anyone wanting to know what is in things and what those things do but if you're really concerned about quote-unquote chemicals which is another one of those things where that word means nothing because it has so many different meanings right um you know everything that we do in r is made up of chemicals everything natural is made up of chemicals and so that term that 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 really a lot of the issues that people have with vaccines and what's in them and what's going on around them comes down to not understanding. So yes, I don't think there's a problem knowing what's in them. Uh, the the problem is understanding what's in them and what it really means. Uh, if you need a primer on how those words and what they mean and how easy it is to confuse people around them, if you need a primer on that, just do a Google search for dihydrogen monoxide. That is a classic experiment that gets done you know people talking about how dihydrogen monoxide kills people uh, around the world and is a, actually one of the leading killers of human beings on the planet but dihydrogen monoxide is just h2o which most of you will recognize as water um we can yeah. make anything scary if we put it in the right context so context is everything yep you know what what is the statistical analysis on these things and, and human beings, by their very nature, are very bad at statistics. I have, um, and this rough number would be about 98%, but I have about 98% of a, a, a master's in public health in biostatistics and epidemiology. So statistics is something that I have looked at a lot. And when you talk about the, the negative connotations of the chemicals, quote unquote, that are in, in the, are there things that can happen that are bad? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the Barbie doll chemicals in your cheeseburger. Are they there? Yeah. But it's context, you know. If you talk about the, the context in which it's being used and how it's functioning, everything that we talk about could be dangerous. Iron in the context of, of dietary iron that you get out of dark green vegetables and, and meats, that's a great thing for your body. Iron that comes from a sword that's plunged deep into your heart, also going to kill you. So iron can save you and it can kill you. Obviously, the context is the real issue. Sure. And, and that's the, the truth about these chemicals. The thing about it is you can look at what they're used and how they're used, and without really understanding the context, see that they cause all of these horrible problems. But it may not be innate, and it may have absolutely nothing to do with the actual vaccine. Sure. Uh, to to put, a pers put it in perspective, when I was in medical school, I actually did vaccine studies, not testing people, but actually being the test subject. Oh, really? I yeah, I volunteered for a couple of, uh, actually three or four different studies that were being done at the university while I was there, partly because it's science and I want to help advance knowledge. I want people to understand what's going on and, and partly because they paid us money and money's cool when you're a college kid. So, but it helped me understand a lot of what was going on because obviously if you're going to do something like that, you have to read through pages and pages and pages of documentation about what is actually potentially going to happen to you if they inject you with this X, Y, or Z thing. And I'll be brutally honest, I don't think I would have let them inject me with anything that would cause the problems that everybody seems to think go along with all of, of the vaccines that are out there. <laughs> and what, um, like, what are some of the scary chemicals that maybe you saw? <laughs> so everybody talks about the big one that everybody asks about and the big one that everybody points at when we talk about and we're not gonna 
I'll be honest with you, chasing down the autism rabbit hole, it has been disproven. There is nothing out there that shows any kind of link from a statistical perspective between vaccines and autism. So I'm not even going to honor that by saying that there is any question. There isn't. Yeah. But one of the compounds that was mentioned during that is thimerosal, which is a a mercury-based compound. And what thimerosal is used for in vaccines is something called an adjuvant. If we can give your body a little bit of a boost in what it, how it reacts to these, these proteins that we're pulling off the surface of these things, that immune system response is going to be a little bit stronger. It's going to last a little bit longer, and it's going to be something that you can keep lifelong immunity in some cases, or at the very least, you know, you can go 10 years instead of two years without having to have a booster for your tetanus, right? So the tetanus, we do that every 10 years. And there's a reason because we have these adjuvants, these extra things that we're putting in that make the vaccine more effective. It makes your body pay more attention. Well, thimerosal is one of those adjuvants. And in very small amounts, it is used in these vaccines in microgram amounts. We're talking about things that you couldn't probably see with your own naked eye if it was put in front of you on a table. Like you wouldn't wipe it up if you saw it on the table in front of you. But in these vaccines, it is there as an adjuvant. Mercury is this scary, dangerous thing because back in the 1960s, we figured out that too much exposure to mercury can cause brain damage. And that is a very real thing. But the volume of mercury that you have to be exposed to is a lot higher than what we're talking about that's in these vaccines. Even still, thimerosal is not even in vaccines really anymore to any large degree. There are still some that do have it in there. But the volume that's in there has been reduced greatly. So we're already talking about a small amount. An even smaller fraction of that is what's left behind. So anything that you talk about that could be dangerous that are in these vaccines really has a very limited chance of causing trouble. The problem sure. is, is that if the chance is not zero, then, you know, so you're saying there's a chance. Yeah, you see, <laughs> um, and that's the thing, right? Like, and, and so, you know, just to kind of wrap up the the vaccine piece, because I think you, you dropped a really, a lot of really good knowledge just on the, I think the important thing that you mentioned is the context around it all. Um, what would you say to those people who are on the fence, like worried about the effects that vaccinations could do or, or wanting to take that more natural approach? What would you say to them? So talk to your doctor about that process. Talk to you to ask questions, learn about, you know, as much of that stuff as you can, but also understand, you know, maybe even talk to people that have had those diseases. Talk to somebody who's had polio. Talk to somebody whose parents or grandparents or brothers lined up down the street to get the polio vaccine when it was first available because they understood that disease and how dangerous it was and, and what it meant to get that disease. And then also do some research into something called herd immunity. That's the other big thing that we talk about in, in public health that doesn't always get pointed out. The reason we have healthy adults like yourself, a healthy adult male like yourself doesn't necessarily need a flu shot for himself. The flu sucks, but it's probably not going to kill you. However, influenza still kills thousands of old people, babies, and pregnant women around the world every year. Influenza is not this simple head cold kind of virus. It is a nasty, nasty viral infection. But we give you the shot because if you don't get as bad a case or if you don't get it at all, you don't pass it on to the pregnant women, the babies, and the old people. So herd immunity basically says if we can get enough people that are covered, we don't see that disease as frequently, which means that the people that can't get the vaccines are going to be protected. So so look into herd immunity, look into those things, and see, you know, kind of understand why we're doing this. In, in the case of, of babies, a lot of times the vaccines they're getting are about protecting them because they are the most at risk for these diseases. They don't have preformed protection. Uh, and just exposing them to it in the wild, there's a higher statistical probability that they're going to get sick, really sick, 
than there is that they're going to just make it through it and then develop a natural immunity, quote unquote. Sure. So, you know, chicken pox doesn't seem like a big deal. But when a pregnant woman gets chicken pox, congenital varicella, which is chicken pox that affects the baby, is a really big deal. Yeah. So it's not just you that you're getting that vaccine for. I think that's the biggest point that I try to drive home when parents have questions. Ask questions. Figure out what's going on. But don't just assume that we're doing this because of you. Mm-hmm. We're doing this for, for, for really for everybody, for the whole population. Yep. And, and that's the hard, I think that's the hard thing to, to kind of understand and kind of grasp when you're in the middle of it with a little kid that you don't want to see get shab, you know, stabbed with a sharp metal stick. I yeah. get that. I understand that thought process. Well, it's, um, you know, the needs of the, of the many outweigh the needs of the one or <laughs> two. Absolutely. You know? so, no, absolutely. It, but, but at the same time, too, that one, especially in the case of childhood vaccines, they're getting benefit, too. Yeah. Um, so it's not that it's just for everybody else, but it is not just for you either. It's not black and white. There's a full rainbow color there, and we need to appreciate that and make sure that we're all, all living in that technicolor world, not just restricting ourselves to the, to the black and white. Well, you know, Jerry, you've you've dropped a lot of knowledge on us <laughs> in this almost an hour. Um, I, I wanted to, I'd like to end the show on a note of like words of wisdom. So sure. take what, uh, you know, you've got a, immense amounts of wisdom here, but, you know, thinking about somebody who may be uh, somebody like a young doctor um, who may be starting out, may be starting a family, uh, what would you say to somebody listening to this show uh, that is struggling with fatherhood, with parenting, um, something that they would want to hear. Remember that no matter how hard it gets, all of the good stuff can very easily outweigh the bad stuff, but it takes a conscious effort to make that happen. Very good. I really like that. Um, Jerry, the doctor, Jerry Tolbert. <laughs> Thank you for being a guest on the Dad Chronicle. I appreciate all your insight and wisdom. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Alex. And, I and, am always happy to talk. Yeah. And, and by the way, where can people reach you if they want to learn more about what you're doing? So right now, the probably the best way and easiest way to find me is at Dr. Tolbert at D-R-T-O-L-B-E-R-T on Twitter. And that's where most of my social media stuff is focused. Uh, most of the other stuff is copied from there or to there. So if you have questions, you can reach out to me there. And I'm pretty sure that my DMs are open. All right. Beautiful. Yeah. Reach out directly to him. Go follow him because he's got new podcasts and stuff going. If you guys enjoyed the little vaccine talk, more knowledge like that is going to be provided on the new show that he mentioned at the top of the show. So uh, so go uh, so go. make sure that you're following him and stay up to, to date on that. Uh, again, our guest has been Dr. Jerry Tolbert. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. All right, so there you have it, a conversation with Dr. Jerry Tolbert from America's Next Top Podcaster. Uh, A very, very interesting conversation, and I invite you guys to follow Jerry and all the work that he is doing. And if you would like to chime in on this conversation, please email thedadchroniclepodcast at gmail.com. And as I've mentioned, you know, I worked with Jerry on this America's Next Top Podcaster competition. And I've been in the midst of doing some work with Brian Ibbett and Hammond Chamberlain. And you can go check out some of the interviews that I am doing with the contestants, with the judges, with the coaches, with Hammond and Brian. I am getting their perspective on what this competition meant to everybody. And I uh, incite some pretty cool conversations. So I invite you guys to go check that out. You can go to America's Next Stop Podcaster.com 
to take a look at that. And I want to remind you that you can become a patron and support this show by visiting thedadchronicle.com. Click that become a patron button at the top. We got a lot of cool uh, ways that you can support and also be rewarded for supporting this show. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, you can do so by searching for at Alex Albisu um, on really any social media. And last name is spelled A-L-B as in boy, I-S as in Sam, U. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If you like this show, check out more great content at incastmedianetwork.com.